Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, which works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Heavenly Father, what great, encouraging words. To you belong honor and glory. Thank you for your marvelous plan to include us into your family and to seal us, to protect us till that day that you come. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Yesterday, Debbie and I attended an amazing funeral for a dear sister in Christ named Megan Spear. Megan is uh, the daughter of a pastor and seminary professor who's a friend of mine. She was only 36 years old, and she left behind a husband and two young children whom she had loved with great devotion. After months of aggressive cancer treatment, followed by a brief period of encouraging remission, the cancer returned with a vengeance. And the last couple of months had been the kind of experience that would drive many people to a crippling despair and bitterness. But at Megan's funeral, we heard vivid testimonies of her irrepressible, always optimistic spirit. We saw photo after photo of her her wall-to-wall smile even after her hair was gone and her body was emaciated from the cancer and the treatments. Her father, who had been a Christian, has been a Christian for 35 years, spoke of how his daughter had taught him during the last months of her time on this earth, what it really means to surrender to Christ, to completely hand over your own well-being and the well-being of everyone that you love, including your children and your husband and your parents. 
And to make that handoff to God, not begrudgingly, not in fear, but with a genuine peace and joy. Trusting in the absolute goodness of the One to whom you have surrendered. All the way to her body's last breath, this dear child of God looked for good things from God's hand, knowing that even if she lost her battle with cancer, she would not be disappointed. At the funeral, the musicians sang a song that I had heard for the first time just one week earlier at Hope Dakel's memorial. Stump had requested that same song at his beloved wife's funeral. The song is called, Even If You Don't. The last lines to the song go like this. I know you are able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow, I know the hurt would all go away if you just said a word, <laughs> but even if you don't, My hope is you alone. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Friends, there is only one way any human being can live and die like that without being completely deluded about what's real. You have to believe in Jesus Christ and you have to know how wealthy you are in Him. You have to know how wealthy you are in Christ. And you have to camp out in that wealth. You have to abide in the richness of that blessedness that has been heaped upon you by a loving Father. Starting this morning and continuing for the next two Sundays, we're going to take an accounting of our outrageous riches in Jesus Christ. Riches that the Apostle Paul just lays out before us in a barrage of blessings in verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1. My earnest prayer is that by the time we move on from this passage in a few weeks, all of us here who belong to Christ will never again be able to see ourselves as anything but outrageously, extravagantly rich in Jesus. We saw last time that Paul's marvelous epistle to the Ephesians is all about grace-driven godliness. The first half of the book in chapters 1 through 3 is about the outrageous riches of being in Christ. The second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, is about how outrageously rich people live. The beautiful run-on sentence in verses 3 through 14 is arguably the most concise accounting in the Bible of the extravagant gifts that God has given to us in Jesus. Paul begins that sentence with a summary statement in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ. And then without pausing, he continues the sentence in the next verse with the words, just as he chose us. 
And with that, Paul escorts us (laughs) into the waterfall of extravagant blessings that have come down to us from heaven from the gracious hand of our loving Father. The first bit of treasure to which Paul calls our attention is that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. The most repeated phrase in these verses, verses 3 to 14, is is the phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved. Every treasure that Paul lays out for us in this passage is ours in and through and because of our union with Jesus Christ. And at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that that union came about entirely by God's doing. He says, by His doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all God's doing. God the Father chose to bring us into eternal union with Christ, and He chose to do that before the world existed. Now, why would God do that? Well, here's a photo of a pile of rubble, and here's a photo of a pile of rebels. Rubble, rebels. Rubble, rebels. You got it? There might be some valuable stuff in that pile of rubble, but the pile of rebels is worthy only of the ash heap. David Dean showed us just how clear God has been regarding our rebellion against Him when He took us to Romans 1 last week and showed us verses 18 to 23. Ever since the sin of Adam infected the entire human race, we, every single one of us, has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. That means that the truth has been revealed and God says, Paul says, clearly revealed and we have shoved it under the rug because we didn't want it. Professing to be wise, men became fools and they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is God blessed forever. In Romans 3, Paul says of all mankind that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Did did you catch that? There is none who seeks for God. There are a lot of people who say they're seeking for God and God says, no, that's actually not what they're doing. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even One. And Paul's quoting from the Old Testament to make his case here. See, we are all part of a big pile of rebels that constitutes all of humanity. So, so, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, I can't avoid the conclusion that that's because God chose you. Before you ever drew breath, He knew you by name. In eternity past, God determined to call you out of that pile of rebels and to shower, to lavish, to pour out upon you an endless, ever-flowing spring of blessing. 
to pour out on you his outrageous grace by bringing you into eternal union with Jesus Christ. Since all of humanity left to its own devices consists by God's accounting of nothing but rebels and enemies, lovers of self, haters of truth, who refuse to honor God or give thanks, since that's God's assessment of us, then for God to save anybody is pure grace. It's pure grace. I know we have differences about the role of free will and of God's sovereignty, but wherever you stand on that issue, beloved, you know, all of us know, that for God to save any of us is pure grace. God's repeated declaration that He decreed our salvation and wrote our names in His book of life before anything was created removes any possibility that there could be any other cause for our salvation than the grace, the grace of God. God chose us before anything existed. And He chose us with a beautiful goal in mind. He chose us, according to Paul, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That means in His presence. The word holy means set apart from all that is common and sinful and cursed, set apart to God. And the word blameless means without any defect. So, God called us from eternity past to be holy and blameless in His sight. How holy? How blameless? Well, in Leviticus 19, God said to Israel, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. That means that God's holiness is the standard. In Matthew 5, there's an amazing passage in which Jesus begins by talking about the kind of righteousness that God requires of a man in order for that man to enter his kingdom. And he makes the very unapologetic point that the most religious people of his day had not achieved that level of righteousness. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. And then he proceeds in the passage to explain in very graphic, tangible terms what God's standard of righteousness actually looks like. And he finishes out that argument in Matthew 5, verse 48 with this statement, this staggering statement. He says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And again, the passage is about what kind of righteousness passes muster with God. Look at it. And if you disagree with that that's the focus of the passage, come talk to me. See, the holiness that God requires of us in order for us to dwell in His presence, the holiness without which the writer of Hebrews says no one will see God is God's own perfect holiness. There aren't two standards in the Bible. There's only one. Later in chapter 5 of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells us that Jesus will bring about that very outcome. The outcome for which... God the Father chose us in eternity past. Ephesians 5, in addressing husbands, <laughs> says that Jesus 
will pre- the perfect husband will present his bride, his church, to himself, holy and blameless. The exact same phrase that we see here in Ephesians 1. When will that be true of us? <laughs> when will Christ's own holiness be ours? Well, the biblical answer comes in three parts. <laughs> we have been made holy, we are being made holy, and we will be made holy. We who belong to Christ have already been made holy. We were set apart to God when He justified us. When He put our sin on Jesus and nailed it to His cross, and He put Jesus' righteousness on us. That happened for anyone here who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. God, knowing that we have no righteousness of our own to qualify us to be His children, once and for all credited the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account when He brought each of us to faith in His Son. That perfectly righteous standing, that perfectly accepted position in the eyes of God is forever. It doesn't come and go. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. We have been made holy, and we are being made holy. We are being sanctified in practice. That which is true of us in position, God is making true of us in practice day by day. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you, present tense, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The Holy Spirit is engaged in that work in the life of every single believer every day, all day. Sometimes it hurts. (laughs) We have been made holy We are being made holy and we will be made holy. We will be glorified. Justified, sanctified, glorified. A day is coming when God will put away from His church every residue of sin and of the curse and we will stand together in His presence with no stain of sin at all. Ever again. Now how do we know all that's going to happen? Because God promised to make it happen. And He said He was going to be the one that makes it happen. Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Many of you know the first verse in that passage. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul goes on, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many Brethren, and those whom He predestined, these He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, these He also glorified. He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. If you have come to trust only in Jesus Christ to rescue you from the penalty from the power and one day from the very presence of your sin. God wants you to know that He will absolutely finish that work that makes you holy. 
He wants you to know that when He chose you in eternity past, every bit of that perfect work of redemption was as certain as if it had already been finished. And by the way, when Jesus died on the cross, absolutely everything that was necessary for you to be made holy was fully accomplished. The rest is just God working it out in time. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Beloved, there is no wealth like that to be found anywhere except in Christ. The second piece of priceless treasure to which Paul takes us is that God predestined us to adoption as sons. And that blessing is inseparable from the first one. He makes us holy and blameless in order to make us His. He makes us holy and blameless in order to make us His. Predestined means destined in advance. (laughs) Foreknown, by the way, means known in advance. (laughs) Predestined means our eternal destiny was settled before anything existed. The first two words in this promise that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus to Himself. The first words, the words that immediately precede that are in love. In love He predestined us. We need to be really clear on this next point. God did not adopt us because we were lovable. And He doesn't mince words about what you and I were like when He chose to say, in fact, long before we existed, but but when He sent His Son to the cross to save us, He doesn't mince words. He didn't adopt us because we were lovable, friends. He, adopt, he adopted us because He is loving. It's not because of what we were like that God chose to make us the objects of His everlasting love. It's because of what He is like. Just a little later in this same letter, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells us just how dead and useless we were. <laughs> he said, you were dead in your transgressions. You were, child- you were sons of disobedience. You were children of wrath. And then he says, but God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. Because of His great love with which He loved us. There's a song by Casting Crowns uh, called Who Am I? And first time I heard the title, I thought, oh boy, another song about me. That's not what it's about. Part of it says, Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. See, real love, God's love, needs no reason in the object. Real love finds all of its reason in the source, in the nature of God Himself. That's where all of the reason for God's love comes from. God chose to save me because He loved me and He loved me because of who He is. Period. 
That gives me very great confidence that it is and always will be well with my soul. (laughs) Because if God made me the object of his eternal love when there was nothing lovable in me, then that means there's nothing in me that can make him stop loving me. And that, by the way, is what the last part of Romans 8 is all about. The very one who has every cause to bring a condemning charge against us is the very one who has justified us, made a, declared us perfectly righteous in his sight by the blood of Jesus Christ. So no created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God the Father predestined us from eternity past to adoption as sons. But when does that adoption actually happen? It's one thing to decree it. It's another thing to make it happen. When do we get adopted? The answer is both already and not yet, as is often the case with God's redemptive work. Our adoption is both a present reality and a future reality. And beloved, the best of it is the future part. (laughs) Again, Romans 8 beautifully amplifies what Paul says here in Ephesians about God's gracious adoption of us. Oh, and by the way, just a side thing here. Did you know that most liberal scholars don't believe that Paul wrote Ephesians? They say it's too much different from his other books. I find thread after thread in Ephesians that are all over the other books of the Apostle Paul. And this thing about adoption is all over Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul speaks of adoption both as a present reality and a future reality. He says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, present tense. He says, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, He says, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God right now. But then He begins speaking of our adoption as something that will happen in the future. He says, we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And He even says that all of creation is waiting for for our adoption because it was subjected to futility and corruption by our sin. The curse that was placed on us affected everything. So we're waiting eagerly. If you're waiting for something, it hasn't happened yet, right? It's kind of simple. That phrase, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, that phrase adoption as sons is the exact same wording that we find in Ephesians 1 verse 5. But in Romans, Paul clarifies that that adoption will not happen in full measure until the redemption of our body. There is a great day coming, beloved, a day that God planned very, very, very long ago. And on that day, our glorification day, all of God's adopted children will stand in His presence with sin and the curse only a memory. On that day, we will fully lay hold of all that it means to be children of the living God. That day is going to come and God wants all of us who belong to Jesus to know it and to camp out in that knowledge, to bank on it. He wants us to find in that promise the anchor of our souls in all of the storms of this life. 
Nothing, nothing can keep God from finishing what He started in us. Notice here in Ephesians 1, Paul doesn't say adopted as children. He says adopted as sons. Adopted as sons. Did Paul forget that there were females in the body of Christ? Now, I believe the answer uh, to that question is really, really cool. There's only one status in the eyes of God when it comes to adoption and inheritance. And that status is Christ's status. And that means that every single child of God has the full rights and privileges of a firstborn son. How many firstborn sons do you have? Just one if you've got a son. God actually has one. And because of that one, He has many. God has put us in Christ and Christ is the one and only Son of God. Where this all becomes clearest is when we understand the matter of our inheritance. And Paul's going to talk a lot about that in verses 11 to 14. But adoption, sonship, and inheritance are all inseparable. So it's an issue already in this passage. Here's how sonship and inheritance worked in ancient Israel and in the, the time of Christ. If a man had four sons and the man died, his his estate was divided into five parts. Two parts went to the firstborn son. That's a double portion of the inheritance. Each of the other sons got one part, and if the man had any daughters, they got no part. They had to get married to have their financial well-being taken care of. Of course, God takes care of His children, but I'm saying that was the system. That was the way it worked. Here's how it works in Christ, beloved. Here's how it works in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Listen to this. (laughs) For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. That doesn't mean that God has a gender conflict problem. It means that our status, our standing, our inheritance, our adoption before the living God is that we are all firstborn sons. Because we are in Christ who is the very Son of God. We have clothed ourselves with Christ. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. (laughs) It's amazing. See, because Jesus is the Son of God and we're in Jesus, His Sonship has become our Sonship. We will receive Christ's inheritance because we have received Christ's identity. And that's true of us corporately and individually. Read Galatians 2.20 for the individual piece. Guys, how is that for outrageous wealth? Remember when the father of the prodigal son said to his self-exalting son, why are you upset? You've always been with me and all that I have is yours. All that I have 
is yours. That's what God says to every one of us. And, and by the way, because our inheritance is Him, it's not like if you get some, I don't. There's no shortage. There's just the overflowing well of Christ in us. It's amazing. This is amazing. That's outrageous wealth, beloved. Paul also says we were adopted by the Father. Listen to this. We were adopted by the Father through Christ to Himself. To Himself. See, this is deeply personal to God. He chose us and He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Now, I can't speak for anyone else here, but this is the most astonishing part of God's gift of life in Jesus Christ to to me. And that is that He saved me to make me His. And He saved us to make us His. That's a really big deal in the Bible from cover to cover. Deuteronomy 32.9 says, Yahweh's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. God's inheritance. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. As Jim Ellis pointed out in his excellent series on the major covenants of the Bible, which is available on audio on the website, there's an incomparable promise at the very heart of all of the covenants, starting with the Adamic covenant in the garden, and that is the promise that the redeemed of God will dwell together with Him in His kingdom forever. He will be our God and we will be His people and He will dwell in our midst for all eternity. You find that from cover to cover all the way to Revelation 21. Beloved, there's no wealth like that to be found anywhere except in Jesus Christ. Paul says, and this is, this is really beautiful, he says, we were predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to, according to the kind intention of his will. That's a, that's a marvelous phrase. It's used again in verse 9. According to the kind intention of His will. Some of your translations say according to the good pleasure of His will. I actually like that translation better. I looked at all the lexicons for the meaning of that word, and what it means is, (laughs) I love this, it's from a word that means delight, pleasure. See, God was delighted to adopt us, to save us for Himself. Did you ever think about the fact that there are certain things that God delights in doing? God does all kinds of things, but there's some things that He that He really delights in more than others. And I'm not making this up. Let me show you. <laughs> in Lamentations 3, verse 33, Jeremiah writes that God does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And the word willingly there is a Hebrew word that means from His heart. Some, you'll see that in your, some of your margins. From his, He does not afflict from His heart. God does not afflict men from His heart. That means He doesn't delight in punishing and judging. He does so because He is a perfectly just and righteous God. But there's something He does delight in. Jeremiah also writes the words of God in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 to 41. And it's part of a, it's part of one of the great redemption promises in the, in the Old Testament that 
follows right after the promise of the new covenant that's fulfilled in Christ. He says, They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will rejoice over them to do them good. And listen, I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Isn't that beautiful? Here's what God does with all His heart. With great delight. He saves. He redeems. He reconciles. He makes new. He pulls us out of the pitch black darkness of sin. And He makes us His own. And then He lavishes upon us blessing after blessing that will last for all eternity. And He says, I want you to know. I want you to know whose you are and what you have been given. He saved us for Himself to be His own treasured inheritance. (laughs) And He loves to do so. There is no wealth like that to be found anywhere except in Jesus Christ. The last thing that Paul says is that he, He predestined us to adoption as sons and He did all of this to the praise of the glory of His grace. Talk about a loaded phrase. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And the Beloved is singular. The Beloved is Jesus. The glory of His grace. That means the God-revealing reality of His amazing grace. Grace that shows God off. The highest goal of every bit of the outrageous wealth that God has lavished upon us is His own glorification. And if it were anyone but God, that would be weird. But when when God is glorifying the one and only source of everything that's good, it makes perfect sense. Paul's declaration that God's grace has been freely bestowed on us is beautifully redundant. Because if it wasn't freely bestowed, it wouldn't be grace. But he wants us to understand that it is. That it is all of grace. It is God giving amazing, outrageous gifts to people who deserve to be eternally condemned. Every good thing that has been given to us has been given to us in and through and because of our union with God's beloved Son that He brought about. So it's really one gift. One really big gift. (laughs) That union with Christ is our real wealth. So, recap. The first thing God wants us to notice as we ponder the vast mountain of wealth that He's given to us in Jesus is that we were chosen by God the Father before the world existed And He chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. And He's going to make that happen to the uttermost. The second part of the mountain of treasure that we've looked at this morning, that we've just begun to look at, is that God the Father predestined us in Christ to be adopted as His own sons so that He could bring us to Himself. And He did so in love, in an extraordinary, incomparable love. And He predestined us, brothers and sisters, to be firstborn sons. 
He adopted us through Jesus Christ, and that means that we share Christ's own inheritance. All that God has is ours in Christ. And He's delighted. He's delighted to adopt us. He did so to show off His glorious grace. The grace that is freely bestowed upon us in His beloved Son. I pray that we won't simply walk away this morning saying, well, that's really neat. That's impressive. I pray, brothers brothers and sisters, that having begun to behold this flood of priceless riches that belongs to us in Christ, our lives and our days, every single one of them, will never be the same. I pray that we will stop living like paupers and start living like firstborn sons of Almighty God. And I pray that we will live that way to our very last breath. Take a daily accounting of the outrageous riches that you have been given in Jesus Christ. Come to Him in prayer and agree with Him about whose you are and what you have been given in Jesus Christ. Beloved, when our prayers stop being almost entirely about what we don't have and they start being mostly about what we do have, there will be a transformation in the way we live. If you take that daily accounting, if you reckon as true that which God says is true, you will live well. And when your days here come to an end, you will die well. Though your outer man is decaying, your inner man will be renewed day by day. Both your life and your physical death will be to the praise of the glory of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Dear Father, make us to see whose we are and what we have been given in Jesus so that we may live like that. We ask it in His precious, priceless, incomparable name. Amen.